Well, we are going to cover the fall feast of Israel, and I had a number of notes that I was going to go over with you here tonight because there's a few things I left out about Pente- I'm sorry, about um, Passover, and wanted to go over those with you. And my granddaughter some time ago had given me a nice, nice little notebook, and I had it next to me, and I was writing down, all right, I forgot this one, I was writing all these things down. I left without it. And I'm not going to try and uh, remember all those things and, and forget some of them again. So we'll, we'll hit Pentecost again next Wednesday, just a little bit in the beginning. But one of the questions that was asked of me, and also in, in looking at that, one of the questions that came was uh, to get a little bit more explanation on the destroyer that came through, who he was, why was he allowed, what was going on with that. So we'll cover that just a little bit. But one of the questions that came through was the timeline of Jesus' three days. Um, I haven't looked at this in a while, and so I was just kind of doing things off the top of my head. I, I, I've looked at this enough. I know he didn't die on, on Friday. I know there's a case that you can make on Wednesday, and there's a case you can make on Thursday. So I set out to try and rack my brain to figure out, all right, how did we get there for both of those days? And so um, this is where we go. If, if Jesus died on a Wednesday, this is how the timeline works. All the references in the Bible are to a day and a night as making up one day. In the book of Genesis, you will see a day and a night, one day. It is always a day and a night make up one day. You never see a night and a day. It's always a day and a night. Now, if you take it on that, if he is buried on a Wednesday night... The day wouldn't count until Thursday. So Thursday would be a day and a night making one day. Friday would be a day and a night making one day. Saturday would be a day and a night making one day. He rose on Sunday before the sun came up. Because while it was still dark, the ladies were, were heading out. So there was no day on Sunday. It was just the night of Saturday. So that's the case for Wednesday. And there's your three days. You can make a case also on Thursday. If you start with Thursday night. But in order for the Thursday to work, you have to start with the Thursday night. So you have to go uh, a, a little... I'm sorry. Um, you have to go on... You have to go... Excuse me. Thursday day. Thursday night. Friday day. I, I wrote it down here in a different way. Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night. There's your three nights. And then you'll have... Uh, Thursday day, Friday day, and Saturday day. But the uh, partial day on Thursday, if he died on, on Thursday and he was buried Thursday night, the partial day on Thursday would then have to count. If he dies on Thursday, you have to count a partial day on Thursday as a day. Because he died around 3 o'clock, that would only give it a very small part of the daytime in which he would have, have counted. So you can make the case on Thursday... I think the case works better on Wednesday. That's my, that's like I said that last week. Uh, some people, if you just look to count them, it doesn't seem like it works out that way. That's why I wanted to lay it out for you here. I think it works out better on Wednesday. If you make it on Wednesday, you also get the double Sabbath having a day in between, which gives them a day to go out and get the supplies they needed, make up the, uh, the spices, and then be ready on Sunday when they go out. If he dies on Thursday, and you count the partial day on Thursday, and then the full night on, on uh, Thursday night, it's a double Sabbath, Friday, Saturday. They have no time. Nothing is open. So you have to go with, they had some things on hand, and they were able to uh, put these things together, even though it was the Sabbath. Uh, so that's why I think Wednesday works better. But you can make it either way for that. But here's the... Here's the kicker. No matter which way you go, Jesus was dead and buried three days because the people who were eyewitnesses all agree this was the third day. The disciples said this was the third day. Not only the twelve, but also the other ones who followed him. The ladies said it was the third day. The religious leaders said it was the third day. They were all in agreement that this was the third day. So however it panned out, 
This was the third day. Of that we have no, no question, no doubt. It was so clear to them, I don't think any of them felt like they had to make it clear in the Gospels. Because it was very obvious that it was the third day to them. And uh, may not have realized that it could become a little blind to us down the road. But for them it was not uh, not clear at all, unclear at all. So my thinking is Wednesday still. Because then you get the full day. And that's what Jesus seems to, to be at. He was He would be dead full three days. Full day, full night. And that works best on Wednesday. But you can also get there if you do it on Thursday. But if you do it on Thursday, you've got to count the partial day as a full day. And that's um, that's where we sometimes see that one having having some problems. But anyway, like we said, the people felt like it was the third day. So we can go with them. They're eyewitnesses. They're there at that time. But as the, the feast we looked at last time, we had the Passover feast, which looked forward to Jesus' crucifixion. We had the unleavened bread, which looked forward to Jesus' unleavened body or the sinless body in the grave. We had the first fruits, which looked forward to Jesus' resurrection. Then we had Pentecost or weeks, which looked forward to the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the harvest that the church would bring in. And like I said, there's a few things about uh, the feast of Passover. And I'll have to go over that next time. Now, there was a question that was posed about the gap that is between the Feast of Pentecost and the first day of Trumpets. So what I did was I went back and, and tried to count the days. So it's a little bit tough because the day of first fruits is not set. We know when it occurs so many days after Passover, but the, it is a Sabbath and the Sabbath can fall any number of days. Somewhere in that week after Passover is the uh, is the the feast of first fruits. Whenever that feast is, you count from there fifty days. So I took a week that had it falling similar to where Jesus was in in this one. And if I count those up, we come out to <clears throat> About 113 or 112 days. I'm in that neck of the woods. If I just pick a year and count the, the days, that's where we are. That comes out to, if it's 112 days, 16 weeks exactly. Exactly 16 weeks. There's also another way I did this, and that is uh, counting the days of the feast. So the Feast of Trumpets... It is there are six months before trumpets because it is the first day of the seventh month. That is 180 days out of the year. Knock out the 18 days for the approximate day of the first fruits because the feast started on the 14th, then went to the 15th. Say that the Sabbath was on the 18th. I'm going on that assumption. And then 50 days until Pentecost. There we got 112 days as well. So somewhere around the 112 days is the gap for which... I cannot find any spiritual significance at all. Not for 16 weeks and not for 112 days. So I don't know that there's anything we can draw from that. It is the age of the church. The age of the church is really not defined in Scripture as to how long it would be. We have some approximate areas. So that could be simply that way. So there's a couple of the questions anyway that were asked. We have those answered. We're going to start off here in Leviticus 23, verse 23. This is uh, talking about the first of these feasts. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. So on the first day of the seventh month, it did not matter if the first day of the seventh month was a Sabbath or not. It became a Sabbath. So every once in a while, every seven years, every six years, seven years, something like that, it would be a Sabbath day already, but it would still be the, the day of the blowing of the trumpet. So it made no difference. The Sabbath wouldn't throw this off. This is when it is going to occur on the first of the a month. It is locked in. This is the month. Usually it falls in our month of September. So they had a memorial of blowing of trumpets. The pl trumpets are plural. This is the first day of the month. And, uh, of course, this represents the church. The, the break in between there is representing the church age, at least to us it is. 
So the trumpets is marking the end of the church age. Now the feast of Israel are not about the church. The seven feasts of Israel are about Israel. Which is why between Pentecost and trumpets there are no feasts. There are no holy days. That's it. Because that is the church age. So during the church age there are no... Nothing in the feast points to it. Points to the blowing of the trumpets which we see as the blowing of the trumpet which is the call for people to be raptured. This is... um, uh, the end of the church age, but it also starts up the Jewish age. Because the Jewish age was, was put a stop to at the end of the 69th week. We still have the 70th week of Daniel to finish that age. So that's a week of years. <clears throat> There's still seven more years to go in order for Daniel's vision to be fulfilled. The Feast of Trumpets will start that back up again. Once that trumpet is blown, the feast pick up because we're pointing to events in the timeline of Israel. So that is the, the blowing a trumpet. The, the trumpet for them, when the trumpets were blown, it was a signal for the field workers to stop harvesting and to leave for worship at the temple. Now, since it was a Sabbath, I was not able to get a set answer on this. Again, this is Jewish customs. I rely on Jewish people. And it is amazing some of the stuff that I was reading on this. Some of it was really frustrating me. But in the, in reading over this, I don't know, seeing it's a, it's a Sabbath day, if you blow the trumpets and it is a Sabbath, can they make the trek to Jerusalem? Can they make the trek home on a Sabbath? Because to me, that would go against what the Sabbath was for. Or did it just mark a day of rest and then the next day they would pick up to, to go? Did it just mark a time? Hey, we all need to quit what we're doing here. And head over. I could not get a straight answer on that in the places that I was looking at. No one really addressed it. So I am left to wonder. I would assume they would not make the trip on the Sabbath day, even though it's not an actual Sabbath. It's a could be a just a holiday Sabbath, and they would wait until at least the next day to to make the trek on over. But I can't tell you that for sure. We then come to the Day of Atonement. Now this one, this one frustrated me a little bit. I was going over this thing and I was, my, a thought came to me. I, I said, I think my studier is broken. Because I'm studying this stuff and I'm just not absorbing it at all. I'm having a really difficult time absorbing these things on the, on this atonement. But it has been a couple of intense weeks trying to put some things together for, uh, things from Wednesday to things to, to Sunday. So that's why I was thinking my studier was just broken. I'm just not uh, absorbing stuff. So I kind of just pushed myself away from it for a little bit. Then it came back to it. And then it finally dawned on me. The reason that I'm not absorbing this is because these folks are looking at the Day of Atonement in a way that I do not look at the way of Day of Atonement. Most of the things, I can't say all the things that are out there, but most of the things that I saw on the Day of Atonement are extraordinarily frustrating. Because they use the Day of Atonement looking back to the cross. Now, I don't see how you can do that. Because the feasts are all in successive order, and they all point to events as they are to happen. The cross has already happened. We've already got that. Why would the Day of Atonement go back to the cross? So, if it doesn't go back to the cross, it has to go back to something. So, I I set out to... uh, to check out the book of Revelation. So I just started opening up the book of Revelation and I just started, I read about half of the book of Revelation to cover over some of these things. I said, I got to find the Day of Atonement. Because when you're looking at the chronological events, if we're, for right in the way we're looking at this, and I think that we are, if the Feast of Trumpets begins the age of the Jewish age, that begins the seven-year period. That's the beginning of that seven-year period. The Feast of Tabernacles represents the millennial reign. So we need something to point to between the blowing of the trumpet, the calling of the church home, and the restart of the Jewish age, and the end of the tribulation. So that's why I was reading Revelation. I was reading this over just to, all right, I gotta, I gotta really absorb this and, and look at it just for the standpoint, where is the Day of Atonement in the book of Revelation? Because the Day of Atonement, for me, is not the cross. It's not going to go back to the cross. 
And it's, it was amazing to, to me how many of these places would go over this, even people that are uh, believers in Jesus would go over this and, and point it to the, to the cross and the work that Jesus had done. And uh, I don't see that as, as happening at all. And I also don't see that Jesus needs to do anything more after the cross. If he took his blood and put it on the altar, I don't see Jesus going and getting the blood back and doing anything else with it. The blood of Jesus could only be handled by Jesus. And he even said, Mary, don't touch me. And when he took that blood, as we talked about last week, it was probably gathered by some angel who went on out there and they had ways of gathering stuff that we don't have the ways of gathering things. And they got just his blood. They presented it to Jesus and Jesus took it and put it as the high priest. He put it on the altar. That altar, that blood stays on the altar. The, the pattern we have in the book of Leviticus is once the blood was put on the altar, you don't go in and clean it off. That blood stays on the altar. That blood is sprinkled in the Holy of Holies. It does not come out of the Holy of Holies. That's where it needs to, that's where it needs to stay. So, I can't see the Day of Atonement as referring to anything that Jesus had already done at the cross. So I have to find another, I had to find something else. What else could the Day of Atonement point to? That's why I was spending some time over in the book of Revelations. Also, nine days after the blowing of the trumpets is the day of atonement. It's on the tenth day of the month. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Also, the tenth day of this month, seventh month, shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. You shall do no work on the same day, for it is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. Now, ask yourself this question. If the work that Jesus did on the cross was complete, why do they need a day of atonement? This is why a lot of people go back to the cross. Because it's an easier out. I don't like easy outs. I want to find out what is he referring to. You shall do no work on that day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on the same day shall be cut off from his people. They were to be afflicted. They were to, there was fasting. There was, uh, things that would afflict the, the soul, the body. Not, the other feast days were feast days. Not this one. This one, you stayed away from food. You stayed away from pleasant things. You afflicted your soul. Verse 29, for any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. If you do not do this work, you are cut off. From your people. This is severe. This is, this is something. If you come to the Day of Atonement and you do not approach this rightfully, then you are cut off. Now, this goes beyond what Jesus did. This is now on them. Before the work was on the Lamb. This is on the person of the children of Israel. And each one is individual. You may follow it. You may not. If you don't follow it, the potential is you could be cut off from your people. You'd be cut off from the atonement. This is the day where the Holy of Holies was entered by the high priest. See, this is what throws a lot of people off. And why they go back to the cross. Because how else can we justify this day where the priest came and presented the blood onto, onto the... Uh, Onto the altar. And I understand the dilemma, but uh, we can't just go for the easy, the easy outs on this thing. I even saw one, one uh, article was written on this, and they uh, used the scapegoat part, and they said, well, Jesus was the lamb, and Barabbas was the scapegoat. All right, we're still going back in time. That's not how God does these things. He doesn't go out of order. He's a God of, of great order. This is something different. So I wanted to, I kept pressing on through. I got to figure out what this is. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on the same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does not, any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall do man, no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month of, at evening. From evening to evening you shall celebrate 
your Sabbath. So this is what you, you had to do. The work is on the person. Do you see that? How, um, how strongly they're emphasizing the work is on the person. On the Jewish person of the nation. The work is on them. It's not on the blood. It's not on the lamb. We're not talking about that. We're talking about them. How they respond is everything. So that's it. That has to be a clue. <clears throat> now I had a note. And I just wrote it and put it out here to you. That on the Day of Atonement, the Jew either lived or died. That's not my quote. That's uh, one of the things I found that they had written about this. On the Day of Atonement, the Jew either lived or died. So if you followed what you were supposed to do, you lived. If not, you died. I don't know if they would take you out and kill you. I don't think they would do that. But you were cut off from your people. If you're cut off from your people, you're cut off from the sacrifices. If you're cut off from the sacrifices, you're cut off from, from being able to be uh, having your sins covered. So as you know, the high priest entered the Holy of Holies to make a sacrifice on behalf of himself and Israel. He did this on the Day of Atonement. This is the only day that he could enter. He could not enter into the Holy of Holies any day that he wanted to. He could only enter into it on this day. This is the time that they would use for confessing of their sins for the entire year. So they would go back and they would find what sins that they did and they would confess them. That wasn't necessarily in the scriptures that we read, but that's what they would do. Now, this feast is not fulfilled by the church because the church does not owe any atonement. Jesus was our atonement. It is not fulfilled by the church. The feasts do not point to the church age. It does not point to anything in the church. That's one of the reasons why you know the rapture has to happen. Now, the church is not innocent, of course, but Jesus paid our price. So, how is it that Jesus paid our price and the work that Jesus did caused us to not need a Day of Atonement, but they needed a Day of Atonement? So, there's a lot of speculation as to what this day points to. Like we said, some go back to the cross. I don't see that. Some see it fulfilled after the tribulation period. It's actually how some people wrote it. They see it fulfilled after the tribulation period. And either before or after the millennial reign begins. Perhaps it's in the judgment of nations. Perhaps it's in the second advent. It might be the, the judgment is in there. Now, for me, as I began to ponder this, I began to focus on this. We have the feast of Passover. We have the feast of first fruits. We have the feast of unleavened bread. We have the feast of Pentecost. We have the Feast of Trumpets. We have the Feast of Tabernacles. And we have the Day of Atonement. Can you notice the difference? Now, we sometimes call Pentecost the Day of Pentecost. In fact, the Bible even refers to when the Day of Pentecost had fully come. But in the Old Testament, it is referred to as the Feast of Pentecost. Now, all the other ones are called the Feast of. This one is not. Now, of course, there is no feast with the Day of Atonement. There was a denying of, of things, but it is called the Day of Atonement. So, I began to focus on this, that it is called by a different name. It is called the Day of Atonement. So, I began to think in my you know, tiny little brain, what in the Word of God is referred to as the Day of? And there is a certain reference in the book of Joel to the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? Anybody remember what the day of the Lord is? The day of the Lord is Joel's term for the tribulation. The day of the Lord is his term for the seven-year period of tribulation. If you go into the book of Joel, and we're going to read a little bit of it here, but in, the, in chapter 1 and verse 15, in fact, the whole, whole chapter 1, he begins to refer to an event that happened in those days. This event was a swarm of locusts. All kinds of locusts came out, and the swarm of locusts came, and they ate everything. They devastated the crops. They ate the stuff on the trees. They ate the stuff that was growing. They had never had a devastation of locusts like this. In fact, Joel is saying, 
What has happened? Has it ever happened in your day? Has it ever happened in the days of your fathers? Have you ever seen a day like this? And I believe it is Joel chapter 1 verse 15 where he refers to this day as the day of the Lord. That's his first reference to it. When we get over to chapter 2, he begins to expand that. And let's read that. Joel chapter 2 verse 1, blow the trumpet in Zion. That's interesting. We start off talking about the day of the Lord with blow the trumpet in Zion. And sound alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming for it is at hand. A day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness like the morning clouds spread over the mountains of people come great and strong and like of whom has never seen. Nor will there ever be any such after them. Even for many successive generations, a fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like swift steeds so they run. With a noise like chariots over mountaintops they leap like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before them the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall. Now listen to this verse. They climb the wall like men of war. Everyone marches in formation and does. they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Everyone marches in his own column Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. This is a pretty prosperous army, and this is an army coming against Israel. They are not cut down. Verse 9, they run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. How many of you remember a song that many times we have sung in churches that you have been at? They run on the wall. They, they run, they run in the city, they run on the wall, I think it goes, something like that. Yeah. Great is the army that carries out his word. That's how the, the song goes. Except, this is not talking about the army of God. This is talking about the army coming against the people of God. So they kind of messed that up a little bit. They run to and fro in the city, they run on the wall, they climb into the houses, they enter at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for strong is the one who executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can endure it? Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, so rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger. And of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and nursing babes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. So look at this. We're not, you can keep on reading and see the rest of this. The rest of this chapter, this is talking about the day of the Lord that is coming upon them. And what he's saying is, it's a great and terrible day. Great destruction is coming. And the reason that it is coming is the same reason that in Joel chapter 1, the locusts came. The locusts came to get their attention. God is saying, do I have your attention yet? You are missing God. You are missing the things you are supposed to do. You are not engaged in true worship. You have picked up idols. You have picked up wrong things. And the locusts have come to get their attention. So Joel is saying, do we have your attention yet? Remember the swarming insects that came in the land of Egypt? It was to get the attention of the people there. Of course, that one didn't get their attention fully. Not until the death of the firstborn did they fully get their attention. But here it comes again. The swarming locusts to get their attention. Then we're going to have a swarming army that comes in. Because even though Israel comes back into the land, they reinstate the sacrifices, they still reject Jesus as their Messiah. So he is saying to them here, 
Fast. Pray. Bring offerings. Get the attention of God. Perhaps He will have mercy on you. Does that not sound somewhat like the Day of Atonement? Fast. And pray. Be serious about this. This is not a fine time of festivities. This is a time to be very serious because if you do not approach this holiday, this, this feast time, this, uh, this day of the, of atonement, if you do not approach this in the right way, you could be cut off from your people. That's in the Word of God. And he's saying, this, Joel's speaking of this future. Do we have your attention? Now, Peter quotes the last part of Joel in the latter part of chapter 2 as he is referring this, and you can keep on reading there and see the, the context of that. But um, he said he calls it another day of the Lord when the Spirit of God is poured out in the day of Pentecost. And Peter quotes Joel in the book of Acts on this. And you, that's towards the end of the chapter. We read the verses here towards the beginning. But it would seem to me that the day of atonement is like the day of the Lord. The day of atonement would represent the same thing that the day of the Lord represents, which is seven years of tribulation. Now, think of it this way. In the book of Revelation, what happens at the beginning of the tribulation? When the church is pulled out, what happens to the nation of Israel? There's a particular number that is thrown around in all kinds of of ways. Particular number. That people always remember. A hundred and forty four thousand Jewish people, twelve thousand from each tribe, who turn their hearts to the Lord. Can you see where this would be a day of atonement? The day of atonement is not for the blood of Jesus Christ to be used in any other way than it already has been used. The Day of Atonement is all about your attitude towards the sacrifice, towards the things that are going on. It's all about you fasting, about you repenting, about you being uh, somber, not prideful before God. This is what it's about. What happens to 144,000 Jewish people at the beginning of the tribulation? is that they have recognized the work that Jesus already did on the cross, that they have rejected all of their lives. And they have changed their attitudes towards the work of Jesus. Jesus didn't need to go out and do anything different. What he did was sufficient. But their attitudes towards it changed. And for them, there was their day of atonement. Because they went from a place of rejecting the work, rejecting the blood, to accepting it. Nothing had to be done differently to the blood. It was exactly the same. That's why it doesn't have to go backwards to the cross. The cross is already done. Passover is already done. And now they recognize, I need the blood of Jesus, not the blood of bulls and goats. 144,000 will reject the work that is being done at the temple. And they will receive the blood of Jesus Christ. It is their day of atonement. It's not going to stop there. Those 144,000 are going to share their message with others. And other people are going to come to a day of atonement. But not all will. And eventually, at the three and a half year period, the image will be set up in the temple. And people will be made to make a choice. You either serve God or you serve the, uh, the Antichrist. And you bow down to this image. And many of the Jewish people will do so. They will bow down to this image. It was their day of atonement. How you approached the day of atonement determined whether you lived or died. And how you approach the Lord during the day of the Lord, the tribulation day, will determine whether you live or die. Now, doesn't that make a whole lot more sense than going back into the cross? Well, it does for me. If it doesn't for you, then you can go and accept anything else that you want to. These are all future. We're, we're really taking somewhat of a guess on all of them because sometimes things will come out later on and then we'll, we'll see. But uh, just know what the, what the feast is about. Understand that. We then move on to the Feast of Tabernacles. This is the seventh month and the fifteenth day. 
So we went with the first day, tenth day, and fifteenth day. <clears throat> Verse 33 of Leviticus 23. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly. And you shall do no customary work on it. These are the feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations to offer an offering made by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering and a grain offering, and a sacrifice, and drink offerings, everything on its day. Besides the Sabbath of the Lord, besides your gifts, beside all your vows, and beside all your free will offerings, which you give to the Lord. Also, on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest. And you shall take for yourself on the first day the fruit of the beautiful trees, branches, palm trees, and boughs, of leafy trees, willows, of the brook. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. And you shall celebrate it in the seventh month. And you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God, so Moses declared to the children of Israel the feast of the Lord. So as they observed this feast, they would remember what God did for them in the wilderness and how he led them through the wilderness. But it was to point to the event that would come after the Day of Atonement, would come after the Day of the Lord, that would come after the tribulation period, which is the millennial reign. It would start on the Sabbath. So to get this, to understand this, we know the Sabbath is, the normal Sabbath is on Saturday. If this particular first, uh, first, uh, the day, the first day of the feast, <clears throat> if the 15th of the month fell on a Thursday, Thursday is now a Sabbath, and Saturday is a Sabbath, and then the following week on the eighth day, so that would be the day, day after that, so I guess seven days would be to Thursday, so that Friday after the, after the feast, would be a Sabbath, and then you would still have your normal Sabbath on the on the Saturday. Now, if any of those hit a normal Sabbath, Saturday Sabbath, then you would um, it would just you know it would still stay the same. It didn't change. You didn't have to float it over. You know, sometimes we have a holiday that falls on Saturday or Sunday. They float the holiday over to Monday. They don't float holidays over here on the Jewish calendar. It falls when it falls, and that's how it how it goes. Now, there's speculation about the eighth day. Is the eighth day referring to something at the end of the millennial reign? If the feast is the millennial reign, and at the end of the millennial reign, we have the eighth day, which is another Sabbath. Could that refer to the great white throne judgment? Could it refer to the the uh, gathering of Satan, locking him up, so forth? Uh, it comes at the end of that particular period. And it may well be, could be what's what's going on with that. But it does seem to be that this is representative of the of the millennial reign, that there will be booths, that, uh, or there will be uh, habitations that we make. But they would do this in booths. They would leave their houses. They would go out into these booths that they would make, and they would live in those to remind them this is how their ancestors lived. This is how they carried themselves through. They didn't have houses like we have houses. They had to have these temporary setups that they would do, and they would set them up at each place that they were at. So they would remember. God wanted them to remember what he did for them in the wilderness so that they would not have to go through all that again. So this is God's celebration of the fact that he provided shelter for the Israelites in the wilderness. While they were there, they had shelter. And uh, in the daytime, he was a pillar of cloud. And in the nighttime, he was a pillar, a pillar of fire. And so they had protection from the sun in the daytime and they had uh, protection from the cold at nighttime. So by them being reminded of what God did in the past, they are reminded of what God will do in the future, and that is the coming millennial reign. Now God's tabernacle will be in Jerusalem during this kingdom, during the millennial reign. We know that from Zechariah 14, 16 through 19. 
Let's read that. It shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations which come against Israel shall go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and keep the, ta- the feast of tabernacles. So that feast will still be kept. And it shall be that whatever, whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain. So during the millennial reign, they are still doing the millennial, this, this particular feast, the feast of tabernacles, and they are to come out. And every year they're to come out to Jerusalem where the tabernacle is and they're to set themselves up there. And if they don't do it, there won't be any rain for wherever it is that they're at. In the family of Egypt, if, if the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain. They shall receive the plague with which the Lord strikes the nations who do not come up to keep the feast of tabernacles. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations that do not come up to keep the feast of tabernacles. Now, this gives you a picture of what's going on in the millennial reign. It says that Jesus will rule with an iron rod because not everyone will submit. Not everyone will do what they want. This is telling you right here, there are going to be some people they're going to decide, I don't need to go up to Jerusalem to the tabernacle of God and camp out there. I don't need to do it. And God says, all right, no rain for you. And so they'll come and they'll, they'll come along and they'll do it simply because, well, we need to have rain. So I guess we better go up there and do it. I don't want to. So this is part of the iron rod that Jesus will be reigning with. Uh, don't do what I'm telling you to do. No rain. No rain, no crops. So apparently, everything is not so easy during the millennial reign. you got to still grow crops. If you don't grow crops, you're not going to eat. So that is still going on during the millennial reign. And so uh, he says, you all need to keep on coming out, celebrating this this particular feast. In Ezekiel 37:26, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will establish them <clears throat> and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Indeed, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Once again, speaking of the tabernacle being with Israel during this time. Micah 4, 1 through 7, Now it came to pass in the latter days... That the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains, and it shall, and shall be exalted above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all people walk each in the name of his God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame. I will gather the outcast and those whom I have afflicted and I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation so the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on even forever. So that gives us more pictures of what's going on there in the millennial reign. But the tabernacle will be there and the people will need to come up to where the tabernacle is. All right, let's go back over here to Ezra. And when the seventh month had come, chapter Ezra 1, uh, 3, 1. When the seventh month had come and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem and Jeshua, the son of Jezedek, and the, his brother and the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, and his brother and arose and built the altar of the Lord God to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God, through fear, though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening burnt offerings. They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required for ordinance for each day. Afterwards, they offered the regular burnt offerings and those for the new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated, and those of everyone who willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day... Uh, the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters, food and drink and oil, 
to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to their permissions which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So they had permission. They had money that was granted to them and they were going to take advantage of this. But notice that they uh, did all the sacrifices which would mean it would seem that the Day of Atonement was celebrated even though you could not enter into the Holy of Holies because there was no temple. If there's no temple, there's no Holy of Holies. If there's no Holy of Holies, then there's no presence for the high priest to enter. So they probably did what they could as far as the Holy of, uh, Holy of Holies or the uh, Day of Atonement was there, but they could not fully honor the day of this particular day until the temple was constructed. Verse 8, Now in the second month of the second year, they're coming in the house of God at Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, Jeshua, the son of Jezadok, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Jeshua with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah, arose as one to oversee those working on the house of God, the sons of Henadad with their sons and their brethren, the Levites. So they start off here with the fall feast. These are the most ho- this is the most holy month for them. And the Day of Atonement, of course, is in this seventh month on the tenth day. And they would have honored it whatever way that they could. Uh, let's go on to verse 10. I think we wrapped off it. Yeah, the nine. Verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with symbols to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. So they're going all the way back to the ordinances of David. Bypassing all the things in between that had become corrupted. They went back to David. This is before any of the idolatry was brought in that Solomon had brought in and many of the kings after that had brought in. They go all the way back to the ordinances of David king of Israel, they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever toward Israel. You'll see that phrase in a few Psalms and a few other places in Scripture. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was was laid. So they laid the foundation. That's all they did, though, was was the foundation. But the people were excited and the people shouted. And we know they had the, the new altar, but they put the new altar in the old foundation. The old altar was destroyed. So they took the foundation of the old altar and they built it on that. They took the foundation of the temple and they restored the, the foundation of the temple. Now this was to show, this is the reason that it's put in here, <clears throat> as we mentioned before, that the exiles did not bring back religion from Babylon. Babylon. They went with one that was identical to the ones of their fathers before they were carried away, before the corruption had come in from all the other kings and all the idolatry that they had brought in. Why they mentioned going all the way back to David. Now some hold contrary to this. You'll find some people who write in history and say that they brought things over from Babylon. But I believe Ezra is writing this to show we didn't bring anything back from Babylon. I don't care what historians want to try and write and say and, and do. Ezra's there. Ezra is compiling this this part here, and he's showing us things, giving us clues where he did not bring back anything from Babylon. Then most of these people spent their entire lives in Babylon. They had seen the worship that was there in Babylon. They had seen how things had gone on, and the temptation, of course, would be to bring back some of that and dress up what it was that you did for God. But they go all the way back to David, and they follow those ordinances. Verse 4, again said, They also kept the Feast of Tabernacles that is written and offered the daily burnt offerings and the number required by the ordinances for each day. They're not going back to the things that were done in Babylon. They're going back to what is the ordinances, what are the things that were commanded of us to do for each of these sacrifices. And that's what they're going to do. They held to what was written in the Word. They did not follow the new influence that Babylon would have provided. Now, this probably created a, a, a battle, just like it does here. How many times do we see battles in churches where people 
that are used to the old and the people who want the new come and they clash. We want this and we want that. And, and uh, this kind of a battle was going on. You had people who were used to the old style of worship and they had people that were only used to the new stuff that was done. The, the modern way of, of worshiping God. Well, when the Babylonians worshiped their gods, they did these things. We like to see that sort of stuff. We like to hear this kind of music. We like to see these kind of colors being brought in. Let's do it this way. Let's bring this in and just do it for worship for our God. We see that very temptation. People try and do the same thing today. Well, let's bring in these things. People like this. People relate to this. Let's bring these things in. That's not what we're supposed to do. Verse 12. But many of the priests and Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the people of the, of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard far off. That sound was made up of people weeping. That sound was made up of people filled with joy and shouting for joy. So this is all going on in the same place. Those rejoicing, they had never seen what used to be. And they were thrilled to have more than just stories they could actually be here and be worshiping God at the place that they heard that it had always been at. But they'd never seen the old temple. They didn't see what Solomon had built. They didn't see all the, the buildings that were there. But some people had. These are old people because the captivity was 70 years. They had to be pretty young when they saw it. But those weeping, they had seen the temple that Solomon built. And by the time they had, had uh, come to see it, it had been stripped of a lot of its gold, a lot of its splendor had already gone. In fact, it lost a lot during Rehoboam's time. They lost a lot of the splendor. A lot of the gold was uh, stripped off and um, things, were, things were lost very quickly because of the sin that Solomon had done. But it was still more spectacular than what they had now. It was still better. It was still more beautiful than this one. And so they looked at this, and maybe they're even sad because, look, all these people are excited. And this is a, a shadow of what we had. This is barely anything of what we had. And they're weeping, they're sad because of all this stuff that is going on. Now the Bible, notice this, the Bible does not point that anyone is wrong here. Ezra does not say, well, these old folks just can't appreciate the things that are being done. They didn't say anything about the new folks. Just not, um, uh, uh, just not seeing what was lost. They didn't. They didn't point anything out that way. They just said these ones are happy, these ones were sad, but they all raised up their voices. And we can say the same thing here for us. Are we holding on to the past, or not being satisfied with substitutes? That's a question that we can get. Are we holding on to the past, or are we just not satisfied with substitutes? The people that are weeping, they don't want to be satisfied with a substitute. They want to go after what they had before. Are we, in our modern day, are we holding on to things that are past? Or are we just not being satisfied with things that are substitutes? Because we have an awful lot of substitutes in the world anymore. People are not uh, as happy with uh, prophecy. And so what we have done is we have uh, mimicked. We put other things in there. And some of it, we look at this and we, we're not satisfied with a substitute. We look at this and we see people, well, prophesy with your instrument. Well, prophesy with uh, your dance. Well, prophesy with... Something. I've never seen this. I've only heard about it. Heard about it from reliable sources. Maybe you have seen it. Prophesy with your painting. And those, uh, some of them, they actually have places. They'll be in the front of the church. Now, if anyone's listening on here and uh, you hear about this, don't get, don't get offended. Just decide to, to judge. Well, the prophecy in the Word of God is words. They are words that are spoken from God to us. But we don't always want to spend that time to get into the presence of God, to hear the words of God. And then once we get the words of God, we may not want to speak them. Uh, some of the prophets in the Old Testament were told, now look, Here's your thing. You've got to speak what I give you. 
Ezekiel was one. You got to speak what I give you. Don't change it. Speak what I give you. And so, sometimes I got to be offensive. And Jeremiah even said, well, I got so tired of putting out the word that I just decided, you know what, I'm not going to do it anymore. They just beat me up. They just tortured me. They just uh, hurt me for saying the things that God had said. So he said, I'll just stop saying what God had told him. And he said uh, his words were, <clears throat> the pain of keeping it in was greater than the pain of giving it out. And so he spoke the word of God again. But we're seeing a lot of people and they're satisfied with things. I've, I've seen some churches, you know, they're practicing how to prophesy and they prophesy to clocks. The word of God does not come to you for a clock. The word of God does not come to you to prophesy to a chair. There are people who do this. It's a substitute. Don't be satisfied with that. That's not hanging on to what's, a, what's the old. That is not being satisfied with a substitute. We don't need to be going after this, these particular directions. But that's sometimes what people will do. And they'll accuse you. You're holding on to the past. You've got to let it go. No, we're not going to accept a substitute. There are churches used to speak the way that God's, they used to speak the things that God said in His Word. Instead, now they're following what the world wants. Well, the world doesn't want us to speak against homosexuality. I heard, um, it's, it's public now. It's, it's out there, apparently. But, uh, Andy Stanley apparently came out and he didn't come out, and as far as I know, he didn't come out in the service. But he apparently fired off a tweet and he called people that are homosexual and serving God braver than the people that are straight. Because he said, how hard is it for you to go to a church that you feel like they're going to reject you? That's what his words were. Well, you don't, you don't ever want to chase people away. They're not going to get saved elsewhere. But it doesn't mean you accept their lifestyle. I don't accept the lifestyle of someone who's a thief. But we'll still bring them into the church because they need, they need to hear the things of God. But... Um, I'm not going to bring people into the church who are going to live like the devil in the church. I'm not going to bring people in there. If, if they cuss and they, they do stuff out there, you don't come in here and cuss God. We're not going to tolerate that. That's Jesus walked into the temple and they were doing things that were wrong. And he didn't tolerate it. He overturned tables. He said, you have brought the, the thievery into the house of God. He says, no, you're not going to do that. If you want to serve God, then you got to live up to what God said. And so we can, be, we can be nice. We can be kind. We don't have to say harsh words. The people that are living a lifestyle, that the Word of God says this is the wrong lifestyle, we can, we can help them out. We get sometimes people, you know, they're, they're shacked up together. They decide we're not going to get married. We're just going to live with each other. Well, that's a wrong lifestyle. That doesn't mean you just ostracize them and kick them out of the church. But it does not mean that you put up with that lifestyle and say well that's okay you know whenever god moves on you no 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 this is what the word says and so you can you can still speak that you hold to the truth but you don't have to condemn but we don't tolerate following a different lifestyle when we are together if we had uh people and they were homosexual and they wanted to come on out here and they wanted to demonstrate their affection here in the church that is not going to happen because that is a wrong lifestyle that's not going to go on and so we have to make sure that we, we stay with the, the things of the Word. But the world is going to pressure you. No, you need to accept this. No, you, you need to be inclusive. Hate that term. Boy, it has become meaning so much. You've got to be inclusive. We need to have people that are inclusive. And um, Jesus was not inclusive. You either follow the way or you're out. And that's, that's how it was. But it used to be the churches would speak the Word. They don't speak the Word anymore. I was having a conversation with somebody this just this week about churches, and then we got to me, me thinking. Uh, some years ago, we used to go down to, to Winter Bible Seminar, and we used to uh, go down there early, because it wouldn't start until Wednesday night. But we'd get down there on Saturday, and so, so we could be down there for church on Sunday. And for those of people who were still around, who made the trip with us, because we would go down in the van, and different people would come with us in different years, we would hit two church services on Sunday because you could do that in Tulsa because uh, some churches would have an 8 o'clock service. And so usually I was always at Grace Fellowship. That's where I had gone to church and we hit their early service. But then we'd be looking around for another church service after that. And sometimes it would be church on the move. Sometimes it would be higher dimensions. 
and sometimes it would be victory. Uh, there's a bunch of different churches that were there, and we were thrilled, no matter what church we get to, we were thrilled that we were in two different churches, and we would get in there, we would look forward to each one. Each one was a little bit different, had a little bit different flair, but we looked forward to it. But now I look over those, those churches that we used to look forward to. Each one has been turned over to someone younger. Or some of them have closed up completely. There's a few of them that uh, fell into some things, uh, higher dimensions. Uh, of course, the pastor there, he fell into some, some uh, wrong doctrine. And people around there tried to straighten him out. He wouldn't do it. Carmen used to be a member of that, uh, of that church. And uh, he left and other people left. And eventually it just went, dwindled down to nothing. And uh, it closed up. Grace Fellowship. It had uh, fallen into some, some wrong things, and uh, they eventually had to sell off the property, and the, uh, the church was turned over to uh, Bobby Anion's son. And uh, I listened to it a few times. It was there, but it's, it's just a shell. There's hardly any word that was there at all. It just wasn't uh, worthwhile. I stopped listening to it or tuning in. Um, Willie George had a tremendous teaching ministry. He turned it over to his son. And uh, I don't know if you ever turned, uh, turned in that one. It's, it's hard to listen to. Uh, how do you come out from, from that? And, and so most of these uh, younger ones that are coming up, they're just not teaching the Word. I've listened to a number of different uh, churches. Sometimes I find somebody that I like, Rick Renner, he was coming here in the country, and I would, he would go to different churches, and so I would tune in. All right, he's coming over here to this church. Let me turn in and see what they're, they're doing on Sunday. Oh, man, it was tough to listen to him. It was painful to see the worship that was going on. It was painful to see how the church actually went on for the whole thing. How do, how do you do this? And then they get into the Word of God. They're just not doing anything. Are we just, well, we're just hanging on to the old or, or what? That's, I tell you, I could live off of Brother Hagin and Brother Price because these guys, no matter what, no matter how old they got, they still taught the Word of God the way they taught the Word of God. And uh, I just love the way that they, their integrity, the way that they stayed with it. It was uh, just absolutely tremendous. But a lot of churches are getting away from this. And we're, we're finding a hard time finding churches that have not substituted entertainment for worship, that have not substituted what the world wants for what God has said in His Word, have not substituted prophecy in the church for dancing and musical instruments and painting. Worship was once reverence to God. Instead, instead the flesh of the people is being entertained. We're not worshiping in spirit and truth. We're worshiping in flesh. And so we, we can even be hit with this question here. Sometimes we look around at things that are going on. Which group are we in? Are we in the group that looks at this and says, Oh, look at all this good stuff that's going on. Or are we in the group who is weeping and saying, Look at the shell that is here compared to once was. And notice that the word does not rebuke either group. I found that to be interesting. Sometimes we might say, well, you've got to rebuke them old people. They were, you've got to let go of what's there. This is the best that we can do. But um, I don't know. We look, at, uh, we look at some of the things that churches used to do and some of the things that were, that were going on and the, uh, the way they would pursue God, the way they would pursue the Word, the way the people were hungry. When we were going to, to, to Rhema, you won't see this anymore. I don't think there's any place that you see it, but... Um, we would, uh, the service would get over somewhere 12.30, 1 o'clock. The service, the morning service would be over. And that's after being in church for two hours, two individual hours of teaching to warm up for the, the two hour session that we would have that we get over somewhere around 12.31. You go out and you get something to eat for lunch and you come back and you stand in line for the gates to open, for the doors to open. They would open at 6. We would get in line a lot of times ourselves. We would get in line 4, 4.30. Some people got in line at 3. Some people turned around as soon as they got out, went right back into the line so that they could uh, get, get there. Some, sometimes it was cold. It was not always warm in February down there in Oklahoma. But uh, the hunger for the Word was just tremendous. And if you did not get there an hour before the service, you might get a seat in the overflow when I was going to school when they got the bigger building. best you could hope for is a, a seat in the balcony. And because people just, just flocked into the the thing anymore not so much because we've let go of some of the things from old this is something that they faced back in here what group are you in do we sometimes mourn some of the things that we have lost from before or are we glad that they're gone 
Some people are glad that those things are gone and we have engaged in some things that are new. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for what the feasts have taught us and point us to. Just as the feast every year, they would go back to the word and they would do what we said. Sometimes we just need to remember, go back to the word, go over what it says and do what it says. Have a time of remembering. This is what the word of God speaks. This is what the word of God calls for. And this is how we are to live. So often we can get the influence of Babylon, the influence of the world. And it tries to pull us in a wrong direction. It gets us to hunger after things that are not of God. Things that honor our flesh and entertain our flesh instead of bringing us to a place of worshiping in spirit. Things that tickle our ears. Messages that, well, we want to hear messages on this instead of hearing what the Word of God has to exhort us to do. But I thank you, Father, for those people that are still hungry for your Word, that still press into your presence and are not satisfied with any substitute, that are not satisfied with any kind of worship that is tainted with a Babylonian influence or a foreign influence. We give you the praise and the glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen.